Hello. Before we get to the podcast proper, I just wanted to warn you that we are totally new to podcasting and we're trying different methods of recording for the first few episodes. There may be a few pops and clicks as we get things sorted out, but thanks for listening. Welcome to Cosmic Tales, Episode 1, a Guardians of the Galaxy podcast. I'm Jesse Butler, and I'm joined with... Jeff Davis. We're going to have other hosts in future episodes, but it's just us for today. The purpose of this podcast is to look at the origins of the characters that became the Guardians of the Galaxy. The movie came out in 2014. The team was put together in 2008, but the characters have a long history in Marvel, as most characters do. So, Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your history with comics in general? I've collected comics through most of my life. Um, mostly been a Marvel fan, so most of these kind of interesting origins and uh, these kind of strange characters that Marvel seemed to like dragging out have always been kind of a curiosity of me. I've also collected a lot of the Marvel Universe handbooks in the Marvel Universe. I've had a few copies of those in my time, although they've turn in and out. Really enjoyed the movie. Thought it'd be fun to talk about them. So I actually didn't do much comic collecting when I was a kid. I do remember enjoying reading comics, and the ones I ended up picking up the most when I was young were the What If comics, which is a very skewed perspective of the Marvel Universe. Indeed. They tended to go on some very odd tangents with that sort of thing. So about 10 years ago, I had a roommate that had a lot of comics, so I read a bunch of his collection, and that's kind of where I became much more versed in the ins and outs of various characters. Did you have some particular favorites out of there? Or? Well, I became particularly fond of The Flash and Impulse. I really liked from Marvel the Thunderbolts, particularly their initial storyline. Hmm. I was always a fan of some of the more bizarre and esoteric ones. I, I always had a soft space in my heart for Doctor Strange. I always liked Doctor Strange in concept, but I've never quite actually gotten around to reading a bunch of his stuff. It kind of goes all over the map, because it depends on whether he's being written by a gentleman who is more versed in classic comic construction, or whether he's somebody who's actually interested in pursuing sort of the mythology thing. He's bounced around a lot, like most characters have. I've also seen him far too often come in at the end of some other story to be like, oh, we're just going to fix all this. Bye. Uh, yeah, he, he is kind of a deus ex machina in a number of ways. So shall we get to the first issue then? Yeah, so next we're going to take a look at Tales to Astonish number 13. Always good when the title is something like Tales 2. Well, so this is from 1960 and is a year before Fantastic Four came out. So Marvel wasn't doing superhero comics yet. This is one of their monster horror comics. They did this and romance. And I think some yeah, Western. Most of those kind of comics were pretty common with the Tales to Astonish, the Tales to Terrify, Strange Tales, a lot of Tales comics that were pretty much pictorial collections of short stories. And to put things into real-life perspective, this is the uh, month that John F. Kennedy defeated Richard Nixon to become president of the United States. This is three years after Sputnik, four months before the first man in space, and nine years before the first man on the moon. It was kind of interesting to have a look at this issue for me, because it's very much a product of its time. Very much. Um, very much. And it was interesting to see how they were kind of perceiving things in it. I mean, it's your classic monster tale, but in a modern sense, it comes across very oddly. 
at least for me. Well, it's definitely clear that when Jack Kirby drew this cover to start this issue, he had no plans for this to be a recurring character. It was just a throwaway monster of the week. Yeah. Uh, also, further detailed by the fact that nearly everything on the cover is completely different from anything in the book. Right, so that's also a product of 60s Marvel in that Jack Kirby drew the cover and then a whole other team wrote the insides and drew the interior. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, let's go ahead and give the credits. We've got cover penciler Jack Kirby. Interior, we have pencils by Don Heck, uh, inks by Dick Ayers and Steve Ditko, and writing by Larry Lieber. Does make me wonder what he's writing nowadays. That is an excellent question. Something we could have researched. Just getting started. So, did you want to go into describing the cover for people if they don't have it in front of them? Yeah, so the cover is really fantastic. It's definitely uh, a nice piece of Kirby art. And I kind of noticed, the first thing that I noticed is that the background buildings, while they're drawn 3D, they're very flat, almost like uh, wireframes. And it really makes the textured Groot monster pop in the middle. <laughs> and he's definitely taking up the whole of that. The fact that he's got roots everywhere, ginormous gray tree monster kind of thing, it really kind of sucks everything into it to the point where just glancing at the cover, you almost don't notice the guy in the lower left corner even speaking. Yeah, so Groot himself is saying, Behold, I am Groot the Invincible, who dares defy me? And the little guy in the corner is like, I defy you, Groot! I shall destroy you before midnight! I assume because at that point he or Groot will turn into a pumpkin or something. As you said, the covers of these uh, don't always match the insides very well. <laughs> and on the first page, we can see immediately why when the cover for it actually going into the title of the book, nearly all of the characters have not only changed outfits, but Groot himself looks almost completely different, including a new color scheme. Whereas on the front, he kind of looked like a monster kind of thing inside he almost looks like an overgrown tiki totem yeah so this was pretty common back in these days because it's an anthology book that there's the cover and then there's four stories inside and each story has its own little opening title page so it kind of is a mirror of the front but drawn by someone else so on here we've got the title of the story i challenged groot the monster from planet x which Planet X seems to be constantly populated by a large quantity of strange creatures. Here we've got pretty classic hero pose type thing. Giant monster taking up most of the page. Guy in the corner holding a torch. And of course, clutching a woman who is hanging off his shoulder because she's going to, sa or she's going to be saved by him. And then the almost Greek chorus in the back saying, No, wait, you can't do it. It's impossible. I also noticed he's called Evans here on the cover, which I guess, or on the title page, which I guess is his last name, because he's Leslie in the rest of the book. My guess, yeah. They did have a habit of referring to people by na last names a lot in that sort of situation. It's definitely eye-catching. <laughs> the other thing I noticed inside the book, which you notice a little bit on the front, too, is with this early comic book style, and probably a, an aspect of the printing as well, but... There's blocks of color, and there's not a lot of fine colorization detail. Evans and the woman are both a solid yellow color, clearly meant to be reflective of the torch that he's holding. Groot is a solid brown color. 
the ground is a solid green color. There's not a lot of variance, not a lot of shading to it. Yeah, that's partly the printing technology and partly the speed at which these comics were spit out. Easier to do the block colors than it is to try to do some more fine detail type stuff. So on this page, we've got Groot saying, Fool! None can withstand the mighty Groot. You are doomed, and you and your town shall perish. Great chorus in the backwards, begging Evans, Evans, don't defy the monster. He'll destroy you. And Evans standing defiantly with his torch, saying, I'm not afraid, Groot. You'll never take our town. I'll find some way to stop you. And the pitch line of, How can a human being conquer the unconquerable? Which is always kind of the thing that they do with a lot of these sorts of things. They'll have setup of the, how can this possibly happen? And then, of course, take the story into explaining how it happened. Yeah, I like how he's not quite as defined on this page. On the cover, he's like, you will die by midnight. And this one, he's like, I'll find some way. <laughs> yeah, his character kind of roller coasters from the cover actually into the book itself. On to page two? On to page two. So, this page is kind of odd because it sort of delays the story a bit. They're driving home from some party. His wife is nagging at him for not being as rugged and manly as uh, George Carter or some other guy at the party. And they see a yellow thing fall into the woods. And I really like the little panel of the, just the little yellow tiny Groot flying. But they're too tired to go investigate now, so they go home. And then the next day, he's like, oh, I think I should go out and see that. And she nags him again. So, oh, you should walk and not drive so you can get some exercise. It's a theme that kind of runs through this story. The wife very much nags him constantly, as we find out in panel five here, considering the fact he's speckled and looking into a microscope, it's clear he's a man of science. He also describes the fact that he's a biologist, and the next few days he was too busy to deal with it. It seems like the wife is very skeptical of his work and his general value as a human being because he's not lifting weights or being rugged and manly or other such things. And she harps on it constantly, yet she's begging him to go do things. My, have things changed since the 60s? Indeed they have. Also, she is the one who really presses him to not investigate. She is surprisingly unfazed when a giant luminescent object falls from the sky and lands in the forest as if this is an everyday occurrence for her and decides that it's far more important to go home, relax, further berate her husband about not working out nearly as much as she should, and, uh, and as opposed to investigating what this curious object might actually be. So let's take a look at the next page. All right. So this one, despite... Uh being nagged to walk, he drives to the forest anyway. It's actually not a whole lot of panels before it reveals the big splash of Groot, kind of glowing yellow, and having wood from all sorts of places sucked into him, including like a dresser and a barrel and that doghouse. A few random crates that he's managed to pull from somewhere. And this is your, your discovery point, because this is pretty much what happens in most of these stories. There's the build-up of a little bit of establishing time, and then here's the monster reveal. Our hero does remark about the fact that his wife's nagging does bother him, but since there's a giant glowing luminescent object and people's fences and trees have disappeared, he's not concerned about that right now. He also has a habit of talking to himself. Well, you gotta talk to the audience. Clearly. It is all exposition, but at the same time, they take the time to have 
narrative chunks at the tops of the p- top three panels where he's actively trying to describe to an audience what's going on, yet in all of those panels he's also talking to himself. Yet in the fourth panel, when he actually sees Groot and when he actually approaches, all of his speech immediately goes into thought bubbles. So walking up to the luminescent object, he's mumbling to himself, and then when he actually sees the fact that it's a giant monster, he wises up, shuts the hell up, and wonders what's going on. Clearly, this whole tale is actually him telling the tale later, and so, (laughs) you know, the narration is for the audience. Yeah. But here we've got the usual sorts of things. Uh, The monster is unbelievable, indescribable. It's doing things that are completely incomprehensible. It's also clearly a threat. This is not some strangeness that may go away this is not maybe some alien visitor who is healing himself because he crash landed on the planet this is tales to astonish and we're going to astonish you by throwing a monster at you and i like how i have a big monster reveal despite the fact that this is the third time we've seen groot since the cover and further emphasis should be put this is not happy lovey vin diesel voiced groot by any means this is ginormous, I'm going to crush your town, Groot. So it's pretty clear there's been some character evolution since this particular storyline. Yeah, um, sadly, uh, we won't see much of Groot after this for quite some time. Well, and that does tend to be the way these things happen. Marvel will develop a character either for a short story like this or just a one-shot interaction. Somebody will think, hey, this is a cool design that we want to do. They'll do it. The character will fall into disuse and then inevitably will be dredged back up commonly with their origin stories completely rewritten to handle whatever new story they're going to be in when they decide, hey, our current stable of characters is getting a little stayed. So on to the next page. Our hero rushes back to town to try and convince the sheriff that something's wrong. The sheriff is skeptical until, I guess that's his deputy? He looks kind of like a Civil War reenactment guy. They go and barricade the town and Groot approaches and uh, gives warning that he will take the whole town to study them on his planet. Again, this one, it's probably modern sensibilities once more, but while the clear sign of shock and surprise where our hero says, I have to warn everyone, it's really disturbing with his bright pink face, red eyes, and red clothes. But again, I'm I'm harping on the 60s sensibilities. But yeah, it's again the setup. The hero has seen the monster. He knows that something terrible is going to happen because it's a monster. And there's never any question in his mind that it could be doing anything that was not terrible. And then law enforcement tends to be skeptical, turns around when the thing actually shows itself, and then assumes that they can just do anything to stop it. Also, they built a barricade, clearly out of wagons and other wooden objects, which we saw Groot a page ago, absorbing to become bigger. Yeah, they're not a very good plan. (laughs) And of course, it's 60s America, so we've got rifles. Everyone's got rifles. I'm not sure if all the townspeople have rifles, but certainly many of the law enforcement people and a few of the townsfolk have rifles. It's kind of a weird mashup because it's clearly got some 50s sensibilities to it, but I'm wondering where they got wagons from with clearly wooden wheels like they're in a 1950s and an 1800s town. It is a bit odd that way, yeah. And then here we've got Groot's exposition about just how he's going to steal this entire town. 
that he has arbitrarily chosen to haul into space. His master plan is to grow a bunch of trees around the town, make a net out of their roots, and then lift it into space and take it to his planet. Which I assume is more than a light year away because clearly we haven't seen it by now. So he can make trees go faster than the speed of light. Yeah, I really like the uh, picture of the like trees with the netting that is pulling the town into space. It's just a great little like thought bubble picture for him. That's This is what's going to happen. And of course, all of the people who are in the towns that I, I guess has some atmosphere because there are trees will not die immediately upon accelerating off the planet. And furthermore, while he is clearly an impressive monster and he is clearly powerful, I have to say that Overlord of all the timber in the galaxy is not exactly the robust title that one looks for if one is trying to impress people. Yeah, and I like how they have a little picture of other uh, treeman scientists studying people in a sphere. Yeah, and the people are all just standing around inside a sphere. Although you can definitely see the Kirby influence with the device itself, with multiple nodules and little bits here and there. 60s sci-fi science. Uh, There's large tubes for what I assume are coolant or something. And of course, after Groot has completely explained his plan down to the finest detail, the aforementioned sheriff asserts, as all aforementioned sheriffs will assert, you'll never take us alive, we'll destroy you. And they have just a little exposition of, ah, your puny weapons are useless. Of course. Don't even actually get to see them trying to shoot it's all kind of off panel uh so i like on the next page uh we have the actual defiance of the guy popping out and this time he says hear me groot you may withstand our weapons but by the heavens above i alone promise to destroy you before you can take our town and then he runs away (laughs) for which he is readily berated by the law enforcement groot and later on his wife he asserts that had he not run away he would have died And does pause long enough to look back with the requisite pow-bam-bams required for we're emptying all of our uh, rifles and other weaponry into him and nothing happens. And in panel four, explain why uh, torches and fire aren't effective on Groot, just because he's too tough to burn. Too tough and too big. I really do like the art of the last panel. You've got a bunch of trees starting to move and they're kind of like reaching out with their roots and, and walking. Yeah, it's very anthropomorphic as the trees aren't like growing or anything they're popping out some of them are even have at the right shoulder height to have arms with active elbows and clear fingers and stuff so then we have one final page where uh, in the narration captions explains it's got like two days that he's working on the lab before he sneaks off and puts to boxes near Groot and then we've got a panel of a bunch of people looking on and arg from off screen, and then another panel with Groot down on the floor. And it turns out that uh, the scientist used the three days of science to breed termites to destroy him. When aforementioned, he was a biologist, not an entomologist. And uh, biology is all life, right? Yeah, sure. And instead of looking into how Groot might have come together, how he might be able to absorb wood, how anything along those lines it's just straight to termites and further there's no lead up to this which is i i haven't read enough of these to say it's consistent but i've read some pulp fiction and it kind of winds up being this way where you've got your hero monster reveal 
how's he going to stop him? And then he whips out his deus ex machina, throws it down on the floor, and all of a sudden he's the big hero. And I also noticed in this part, all of a sudden, the wife who has been consistently berating him for not being manly in the first panel of this last page, in fact, says, why aren't you out with the other men trying to stop that monster? Must you be weak and spineless to the bitter end? Last panel, oh, darling, forgive me. I've been such a fool. I'll never complain about you again. Never. So in the course of him breeding termites and killing Groot, whom the only signs you have of him being dead are his mouth and eyes are closed, yet he's made of wood anyways. That short amount of time, all of a sudden, her complete doubt of science that's been driving her for gosh knows how long evaporates immediately because he can breed termites that can kill giant wood monsters. So the other thing I wondered is, while, yes, guns and torches are ineffective on Groot, you'd think that perhaps the army might have some bigger weapons. And while, yes, the town is surrounded by trees, which I guess, you know, disabled all the phone lines and stuff, they probably had a radio and in three days could summon the army, right? Yeah, and it's the 60s, so there would be an air force anyways. Furthermore, one would think that even in the 1960s, the government would be well enough aware of things in general that they would notice giant trees growing overnight. And there were observatories around that likely would have noticed some giant luminous object crashing into a forest and probably would have sent somebody else to investigate. I'd also like to point out in this town of people wearing lots of cowboy hats, mind you, this is the only scientist they have. It's Clearly a moderate-sized city, because there are some skyscrapers, but it's clearly not massively huge, as the map shown to us before, the, before Groot weaves his net seems to consist of a few houses here and there and a couple of buildings. Also, I have to say, his termite breeding station is rather interesting. It's typical biologist uh, lab equipment. Sure. I mean, doesn't every biologist have a giant machine with dials and a huge condensing tube full of some liquid floating there? Some orb-like microscopes that are on exceptionally long arms? The better to see the termites with. I see. What I got out of this story, and I think this drove a lot of the 60s Marvel stuff, that there was actually an attempt here as heavy-handed as it may appear to be us, to us now, that uh, science was actually going to solve our problems. Science was going to make a better tomorrow. Our classic masculine ideals of we're going to beat the shit out of it, or we're going to shoot it with guns, or something along those lines is not going to be effective in every single situation. We need to actually use our brains and our expertise to overcome the obstacles that are going to be happening to us. Yeah, I think that's the sense they were trying for. It definitely feels fairly heavy-handed for us these days, but uh, so it goes. Particularly in that last part where the sheriff himself says, well, I'll be, I never even thought of that. And random business-suited guy in the background says, that's why Evan is a scientist, and you're only a sheriff. Very heavy-handed. That looks like a good look at the introduction of Groot. Join us next episode for Iron Man 55, Beware the Blood Brothers featuring Tracks the Destroyer. Thanks for listening.